Okay, good morning. I see you're all seated, so we'll go ahead and get started. Um, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, to talk about your holy city, Zion, but more importantly, the king of that holy city, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just hear to gain information, but Lord, I pray you would use your word to humble us, to do as you promised in Hebrews, to judge our thoughts and intentions. And Lord, that you would help us to long for that day when we will be in Zion with our King. Father, that you will be with us and we will understand that our hope is not in this world or the things of this world, but in the kingdom to come. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, it's mid-February, and we are at chapter 60 of the book of Isaiah. We started in December of last year. I have to confess, I thought at this time we'd be about chapter 30. So we've, we've actually gone a lot faster than I thought we had would. But, uh, and let me just give you some administrative things. When we finish this, probably end of March-ish, beginning of, of uh, April-ish, we're going to do a series on what is a real church, right? And we're going to do that, and I have no idea how long that's going to take. I'm just starting to work it out now. But that's going to take us a while, and we're going to talk about what makes a church a church and what makes it a social organization. So um, that's what we're going to do after this, but we've still got a lot to cover in Isaiah. Now here's the deal. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, same time, same bat station right here, same teacher, same tables, same coffee. Well, we'll make fresh coffee, but you get the idea. It'll taste the same. There you go. So we're going to look at Zion. We're going to look at God's fulfillment of his promises to Israel. And some of you may be tempted to think, well, ah, this is all about Judah and Israel, and that's fine, and, you know, and, and look at your phone and see what's going on on Facebook. But what you need to understand is when we look at the future and we look at what God is going to do when he establishes his kingdom, it is not just about Israel. You need to understand Zion is about you. What's going to happen in Zion will affect you. When I say you, I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean personally, individually, each one of you. Zion is in your future. You will be part of Zion. And more importantly, you will be a slave to the king who rules from Zion. So when we go through this chapter today, we're going to talk a lot about Israel, but we're going to talk a lot about us. Because in this chapter, God is going to make it clear that Zion is not just about Judah and Israel. Zion is about the nations. And when he says the nations, who does he mean? He means you. He means you, every single one of you. Let me start off with a quote from one of my commentaries I use where he's going to emphasize this very point. 
Orland says this, God's promise is not just to us. God has made a promise to his son. We've been made part of something vast and ancient and glorious. God has committed himself to renew by the world, renew the world by his spirit and word, a commitment based not on what we deserve, but on his pledge to his son. World renewal is as certain as God's faithfulness to himself. So Isaiah urges, brighten up. Brighten up. We're going to see that when we look at the beginning of chapter one, chapter 60. Arise, for your light has come. We are to shine forth, we're to arise. So I want to take a look at this, but I want to give you some background, and I want to... I want you to understand that what we read and studied in chapter 59 last week and what we're looking at this week are related, right? I don't want us to get disjointed. First of all, you need to see that this is God's promise to us. If you remember, um, at the end of chapter 59, he said, this is my covenant with them. So you wonder, who is the they? Those in Jacob who turned from transgression? No, God's covenant is with repentant people. Then in the next verse, he says, My spirit is upon you, and my words I will put in your mouth. He's talking about the new covenant. And is the new covenant applicable to Israel? Yes, it is the promise to Israel. In fact, it's given to Israel, not us. But then, we already talked about last week, when Jesus, during the Lord's uh, table, when he instituted that um, ordinance, and he gave the cup to his disciples, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for who? For you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who start the church. Right? It's a promise to the church. And we need to understand the you in verse 21, who does that refer to? We're talking 21 of the last chapter. Um, we need to understand that unlike English, second person pronouns in Hebrew have gender. The you in chapter 59 verse 21 is masculine, while the you in chapter 60 verse 1 is feminine. So what does that mean? It's referring in chapter 60 verse 1 to Zion. Zion is always referred to in the, in the feminine. Cities are like that. So the masculine you, if that's right. So the masculine you in 59 isn't Zion. It's the people of God he's talking about. He's talking about the people of God as he ends that chapter. Now he's going to talk about Zion. And I want you to note, if you look, I put a really cool little table in your notes. And I'm going to compare and juxtapose chapter 59 with chapter 60. And I've titled them before Israel, I mean Israel before and Israel after. But you can replace Israel with your name. In fact, on your notes, scratch out Israel and put your name. Because what is true of the Israel in this situation is true of every single unbeliever. 
every single unbeliever. So let's look at this. Stand by one, hold short. We'll get there. If you remember in chapter 59, we looked at the despair of Israel. Jesus, God, condemns them for their sin, and they look inside and they, they wail, they despair. Remember verse 9 of chapter 59, it says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in thick darkness. That is true of all unbelievers. That was true of you. You walk in darkness. You look for justice in yourself. You look for all these things, but as all there is is darkness. But now look at chapter 60, verse 19. God is going to say, here's what I'm going to do for you. Israel, as we saw in chapter 59, was not able to do this through their ritual, through their Sabbaths, or anything else. Israel was not going to change their situation. Who changes their situation? Yahweh does. And we're going to see that. It's right here in chapter 60. No longer will you have sun for light by day, nor brightness uh, will the moon give, to, give you, but you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. See, before they despaired in darkness, now God says, look, I will be your light. You don't need the moon anymore. You don't need the sun. Yahweh is going to be your light. We're going to, we're going to unpack this later. I'm just using this to help you tie these two together. Look at the despair in chapter 59, verse 10. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. Remember Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he said, you're blind men leading the blind. Right? 700 years after Isaiah writes it, it's still true. But now look at 60, verse 5. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will tremble and be large with joy, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. See, before they groped like blind men, and they said we're like dead men, now he says, look, you'll be radiant. You will be large with joy. You will see. When Zion comes, when the king comes, that will be true of Israel. It will be true of every believer. Notice how they lamented in chapter 59, verse 11. All of us growl like bears. We moan sadly like doves. We talked at length about that. It's a moaning. It's a suffering. Look at 60, verse 5 again, where it says you will be large with joy. The wealth of the nations will come to you. In 59, 11, verse uh, the second half, he says, We hope for justice, but there is none. Salvation, but it is far from us. There's no justice among them, and there's no justice in their own hearts. But look at verse 18 of chapter 60. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. 
but you will call your walls salvation and your great gates praise. See, where there was no justice, where there was only violence, now there will be peace. Violence won't be heard again, no devastation. We're going to look at this in depth. Look at verse 13 of the last chapter, transgressing and denying Yahweh and turning back from God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from your heart's lying words. That was them. That was you before you got saved. Right? That was you. That was every unbeliever. Look at Romans chapter 1. But now look what's going to happen in verse 22. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may show forth my beautiful glory. Did you get it? See, in chapter 59, Israel wails because of their sin, and their ritual isn't going to do anything to fix it. But now God is going to say what He's going to do. Now we're going to see what Yahweh, what Christ is going to do. And what's the significance of Zion? Who cares about Zion? You do. Zion isn't just about Israel. Look at, remember back in chapter 2, verse 4? I mean, starting in verse 2. Now it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hill. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Who's going to go to to go to Zion, who's going to go there, according to this verse in chapter 2? All the nations, all of the Gentiles, all of the remaining Gentiles after the tribulation, when Christ comes again, will all come to the holy mountain where God himself will dwell. Look at Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is a great passage. Now it will be in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains. Does that sound a lot like what we just read in Isaiah? Pretty much. Because, oh, by the way, who wrote it? Same Holy Spirit. There you go. Um, and will be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come, will say, Come, and let's go to the mountain of Yahweh and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, and that we walk in his paths. Well, that sounds like what we just read in Isaiah. God's trying to make a point here, right? When God says the same thing over and over through different prophets, Maybe we ought to pay attention. Maybe he's talking to us. Look at Psalm 84. How blessed is the man who strengthened you, whose heart are the highways to where? To Zion. 
to Zion. Zion's not just about Israel, folks. Is Zion about fulfilling the promises to Israel? Of course. But what I want you to understand is Zion is about you. Now, here's, here's the deal. When he talks about the nations, he's going to talk about those Gentiles who survived the tribulation. I got news for you. You won't be there at the end of the tribulation. Which, by the way, that's good news. Go yay. Right? Go yay. So what has this got to do with you? Because you're not going to be there. Oh, yes, you are. Right? Yes, you are. Personally. Because we're going to see in Revelation that when the king who's going to live, when Yahweh comes back to Zion, when the king of kings and lord of lords, who is Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is going to come back and rule in Yahweh, and guess who he brings with him? You. Right? This isn't metaphorical. It's literal. Your resurrected, perfected body that has been in heaven with Christ for seven years will now return with him. And guess where you're coming to? To Zion. You're coming with him to Zion. Jesus is going to rule from Zion. Look at Psalm 2. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. My holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Who's the king he's talking about there in verse uh, 6? Jesus. And he says, I, Yahweh, is installing the servant that we've been reading about on this holy mountain, and he will rule, and God says, and I'm going to give you the nations. Right? Clear as it could be, Jesus will rule. So I know you're going, boy, it'd be good if he had a New Testament verse. Okay, for those of you asking that, go to Luke 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. So who are we talking about here? Oh, there we go. Very perceptive. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. And guess where he's going to do that? Zion, Jerusalem. Okay? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, your Savior, will rule in power. Right? When Jesus comes the first time, how does he come? As a little babe, helpless, in the arms of a sinful woman, and he grows up and he's mistreated and he's abused, and they finally nail him to a tree and kill him. Right? The humble servant. We've read about that in Isaiah. When he comes back, he's not coming back as a humble servant. Right? When he comes back, what's he coming back as? King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will come with a rod of iron to judge the nations. And by the way, if you read Revelation, if we were to do that book, 
He is very good at that. He's very effective. And you need to understand the nations will worship where? Zion. Psalm 147, verse 12. Laud Yahweh, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthened the bars of your gates. He blessed your sons within you. He is the one who sets peace on your borders. He satisfies with, uh, with the finest of the wheat. They will come and they will all worship. They will praise God. Where? In Zion. In Isaiah 56. Foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his slaves. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant. By the way, who's that? That's you. That's Israel, those who are regenerated, but that's also you. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them glad in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Right? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the foreigners, the non-Jews. And they're going to go and they're going to pray and they're going to offer sacrifices where? Zion. Ezekiel 40, Behold, there was a wall on the outside of the house of Yahweh. This is the new temple all around. And a man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. The reason I put that is talking about the new Jerusalem and the new temple where God is worshipped. And we will be part of that. It's not just Israel. By the way, Zion is where God lives, Ezekiel 48. He says, for the city will be 1,800 cubits around. He's talking about the same thing. And the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh is here. That's the name. Yahweh is here. You can look in Zechariah. Uh, oh, man, I'm not even. We may do this in two weeks. But I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. This is really important. Zechariah 2, starting in verse 10. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and will become my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. Then Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. And I want you to notice, he says, Yahweh of hosts has sent me capitalized to you. Who's the me there? Who's the me he's talking about? Jesus Christ. You know, there's a sense, Christ is going to rule in glory, and, and I just want to see it. I want to go to the top, I want to go to the mountain, and I want to see him on the throne sitting in glory and bow down with him with all the nations. I think that will be really cool. By the way, it will happen and I'll be there. Look at Zechariah 8. Thus says Yahweh, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts 
will be called the holy mountain. Is there any question here about where God is going to dwell during the millennial kingdom? I, I hate to disappoint you. I know, so just relax. It's not San Antonio. It's not even Texas. Now, we may have been number two on the list, but it's Jerusalem. Yahweh will dwell, and he calls it his holy mountain, the city of truth. It's not that way today, is it? Not at all, but it will be. How do I know it will be? Because Yahweh himself has said it. God himself, Christ himself. So let's get into the text. By the way, this is one of the most exciting chapters and, and the whole rest of the book. It's, this is the climax. This is the climax of Isaiah's ministry. And it's like, you know, in some songs when they build up right at the very end, that's kind of what this book is like. It's all building up for the end. The big chorus, the high notes, all this. And we're going we're gonna to see in, chapter, in this chapter, we're going to see the glory of Zion and how it affects the nations and how it affects Israel. I mean, this chapter is all about Jesus. This chapter is all about the glory of God. This chapter is all about God's faithfulness. This chapter is all about God saying, I made a promise to you and now here's the fulfillment. And we're going to see in here, it's not just fulfilled to the minimal needs. When God said to Abraham, and when God made the Palestinian covenant, and when God made a covenant with David, and when God made the new covenant, he made all these promises, he's not going to just fulfill them. He's going to fulfill them in a way that goes beyond their understanding or expectations, and frankly, beyond mine. This isn't just, oh yeah, okay, I'll give you some of the land. This is God's outpouring of incomprehensible grace. And one of the things you ought to take away from this is when you look at your own lives, your lives are an example of God's outpouring of incomprehensible grace. Right? Because of your future, your destiny. Israel is suffering right now. Some of us are suffering. Right? But we are still God's people. And God is going to pour this out. So let's just get into it. I want to look at the first three verses. Again, I'm reading from the LSB. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Jerusalem, you've been going through suffering and darkness for millennia. Your light has come. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and the dense gloom of the peoples, but Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You know, when, when you read what all the commentarians say about this passage, I mean, they're all kind of like me. You read that and you lose your breath. Right, you read it and it's just like, how do you imagine that? Notice he, he doesn't just say, you know, my glory will be over there in the corner of Jerusalem. Look what he says. 
He says, but Yahweh will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. See, it's, it's not just that you're going to be over in a corner witnessing it. In some way that I honestly can't understand completely, you'll be part of it. His glory is upon you. It's amazing. Let's take a look at the first command. God says, arise, shine. Zion is commanded to arise and shine. At long last, the glory of the Lord has returned to Zion, and he has restored his glory, and it's been accomplished by his sovereign grace through the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see later in the book, God's going to give us details about the return of Jesus. Incredible detail. You kind of want to understand what it's going to look like. Well, hang in there. We're going to see that. But what we're seeing here is when God comes, he tells, look, he is commanding them to arise and shine. But on the other hand, he's the one doing it. Right? It's kind of like when you got saved, right? You were commanded to believe, but who gave you the faith? God did. He commands you to believe, but God does it. Here, he commands Israel to arise and shine, but then God's going to make the light. God's ultimate glory has come. This is the unveiled Shekinah glory has returned to the new Jerusalem. You know, we read in the Old Testament about Moses, right? And Moses sees the pillar of fire, and he goes up to the mountain, and he beholds God's presence, right? And, and in the tent of meeting. And there are other places where the Shekinah glory, Jacob witnessed it, right? There are other cases where other people have witnessed the Shekinah glory. God's veiled but incredible glory, right? But it's always veiled, right? It's always, I mean, they couldn't even, Israel couldn't even go up the mountain, only select people. And they see the glory. In fact, Moses says, look, this ain't enough. I want to see your face, right? Remember, Moses says that. I need to see your face because if we're going to go in the wilderness for 40 years and, and you're not with us, I ain't going. And what's God's answer to Moses? Yeah, you see my face, you're dead. And he goes, okay, Moses, I understand that desire. Frankly, that's the desire of all believers. We want to see his face unveiled. God says, look, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by, and you get to see my afterglow. You get to see the veil part. You don't see it all. But here, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the full unveiled glory of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's, what's that going to look like? What's it going to be? I can't, frankly, imagine it. I, I try really hard. I just know it's going to be beyond comprehension. It's the unveiled Shekinah glory. Psalm 2 talks about it a little. It says, Psalm 2, verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my King on Zion, my holy mountain. Look at chapter Isaiah 6. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, that's true today, but in, in a 
not fully revealed sense, but then it will be fully revealed. The whole earth will be full of his glory in a way that is palpable, visible, but it's still incomprehensible for us to think about today. Look at Acts 1.11. And he said, Mount of Galilee, why do you stand here looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He went into the clouds. He's going to come from the clouds. He's going to return. He left from Jerusalem. He's coming back to Jerusalem. And then look at Revelation 19. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he wages... He judges and wages war. Who is that guy on the white horse? It's Jesus. If you read the rest of the chapter, and we're going to go and look at some of the other verses, we come with him. But he is coming on a white horse, and he's going to come to judge and to wage war. And we're going to see in... in, So look at the next part, judgment against unbelievers, verse 2. Notice what it says. It says... Um, oh, I'm, there I am, 2A. Darkness will cover the earth and dense gloom the people. Well, who's this referring to? Who's this talking about? It's talking about the unbelievers. When he comes back, right, Israel's going to experience the light of the king, but unbelieving and unrepentant people are not going to experience that. What are they going to experience? Gloom. I just want to point out, go back to Revelation 19, verse 15. Part of that same passage, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. We're going to see in chapter 16, as he's coming from Basra, His robe is dipped in, in fact, it's covered in blood. Who's the blood? Whose blood? The nations. He's going to come and he's going to judge the nations. There will be dark gloom and he is going to utterly destroy all evil and all who do evil. Not some, not most, not 95%, all. Of those of the armies he has come to destroy. We'll see that in chapter 63. Hold short. You're going to love it. Chapter 63 is awesome. Well, chapter 60, it's all awesome. And look at chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed by the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's unbelievers. And then later we're going to see at the great white throne what happens to them, and guess who they get to join in the pit that burns with fire and brimstone forever. 
Okay, but look at, so he goes right from there, look at the second half of verse 2. But Yahweh will rise upon you. See the contrast? Boy, if you're an unbeliever, it's going to be darkness and gloom. He's going to come with a sword of his mouth, and he is going to utterly destroy you. And he's going to cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the pit forever. And all those who are with him, he's going to kill, and then they're going to get cast into the pit forever. But look at the second half of verse 2. But Yahweh will rise upon you. See, that in a way is almost a metaphor for your life. You were in darkness and gloomed, and what were you headed for? What was your doom? Your doom was to die and be eaten by birds, not physically, but metaphorically. To die and spend eternity in hell. That was your, that was your destiny until He came and He put His light and it rose upon you. Right? He saved us. Look at Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. What a beautiful word picture here. We're going to all be excited like young calves. Isaiah 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, my word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Do you understand that when we send the gospel out, every elect person will come? Right? When we share the gospel with the elect, it will not go out void. They will come. When somebody shared the gospel with you, you came. Why? Because you were really smart? Was I really smart when my sister shared the gospel with me doing dishes? No. But God, as the new covenant says, the word went forth from my sister into my heart, and then God turned a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. What did I do? I just did what God did in me. I didn't do anything. God did that. God sent his word out. God's word accomplished what God wanted his word to accomplish in my heart. And as a result, his light shone upon me. Right? Isn't that awesome? By the way, that is true of every one of you if you're a believer sitting in this room. Right? And one day that's going to happen to all Israel. Look at Isaiah 46, 13. I will bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion, my glory in Israel. Who is going to save Israel in Zion? Remember in chapter 59, the gloom, because what was Israel trying to do? They said, oh, we've got all this ritual, we give all this stuff, we do the Sabbath. We do all this, certainly God favors us because we're doing all this activity. Remember that? That was last week. What's God's answer to them? No, I'm afraid not. You're unrighteous, and he talks about their sin and their gloom, and they despair. And then God says, no, no, I will come. 
It's not you, Israel. It's me. Psalm 102, verse 16. For Yahweh has built up Zion. He has appeared in His glory. It is Yahweh who's done it. It is Yahweh who's fulfilled all of His covenantal promises. Right? The Abrahamic covenant. The Palestinian covenant. The Davidic covenant. The new covenant. God made unconditional promises to Israel and he is either going to fulfill them or he's a liar. We're going to see he's not just going to fulfill them, he's going to fill them in an incredible way. Let's look at verses 4 through 9. Lift up your eyes around about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on nurses' hips. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will tremble and be large with joy. What a great phrase. You know, that should be true of you. Is your heart large with joy? See, he's talking about you. It should be. Repent if it's not. Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephath, and those from Sheba will come, and they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of uh, Nebioth will minister to you. They will go up, and ex- uh, up with acceptance on my altar. And I shall adorn my glorious house with beautiful glory. Who are those who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will hope in me. And the ships of Tarsus will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, because he has adorned you with beautiful glory. Wow. Is that an incredible passage? Lift up your eyes around and see. First of all, what we're seeing here is the return of the remnant. Notice he says, They all gather, they come to you, your sons from afar, your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hip. Remember we talked earlier I said we, we gave a little bit of an eschatological foundation. And I said, how many gatherings of Israel will there be? Do you remember? How many gatherings of Israel does the Bible talk about? It talks about two. Okay. Um, the Bible speaks of two regatherings of Israel. The first one is a gathering in unbelief. It's described in Ezekiel chapter 20. And I put that verse there. What Isaiah is talking about is the second regathering of Israel into the millennial kingdom. It's a regathering in salvation and glory and righteousness. In Ezekiel 20, verse 33, it talks about the first gathering. And it says this, As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, And with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. 
And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. And with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. What's he talking about? That period where he says, I'm going to enter into judgment with you face to face, Israel. That's not just general. That's talking about a very specific time. What is it? What's that time? Seven years. Begins with a T. Okay, who said that? Tribulation. There you go. You get an extra donut hole. Okay? See, God is going to bring people from all, all the Jews, and he's going to bring them to Israel and to the wilderness, and he's going to enter into judgment with them face to face. He says, with my wrath poured out. This isn't a judgment like we've seen before. This is God doing it. And it's described in detail in the book of Revelation. It's the tribulation. It is the 70th week of Daniel, talked about in Daniel 9. He's going to enter into judgment with Israel. That's the first regathering. And we're going to see later that during that regathering, two-thirds of Israel will be wiped out. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This is talking about the second regathering. Isaiah 49, 18, lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, surely you will put on all of them as jewels and bind them as a bride. He's going to bring them all. Isaiah 49, verse 22, thus says Yahweh, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and make, my, make high my standard to the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their bosoms and your daughters will be lifted up on their shoulders. The nations will bring all of the people of God, all of Israel. He's going to regather them all. And they will live in the land promised to Abraham and they will fulfill the covenant and they will be his people and he will be their God. All right? That's what's going to happen. I want you to look at their growth and wealth. Look at verses 5 through 7. The Gentiles are going to bring their wealth to Israel. By the way, if you look at the history of Israel and if you look at the Jews throughout history, starting like with Abraham almost, they have been plundered, they have been pillaged for centuries. But now, under the leadership of the king of Jerusalem, the nations are going to bring their wealth to Israel. They will do this not because they're forced, it's not under duress. They will do it as a service to the king, and they will worship the king of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ himself. See, what you need to understand is the nations have been pillaging the Jews and Israel for millennia. They continue to do it, right? Just like, look at the headlines. They took their people, right? That just happened months ago. They killed many of them, took more. They pillaged their stuff. It's been happening throughout history. But now, because the king is there, the nations, as an act of worship to Yahweh, to the king on the throne, Jesus Christ himself, will now bring their wealth 
and they're going to bring it to Israel, and they're going to bring it to Jerusalem, and Israel will be the benefactor. Isaiah 45, 14, thus says Yahweh, the fruit of the labor of Egypt and the prophet of Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and they will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. You can look at Isaiah 61, verse 6. We're going to get to that next week. Look at Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with desirable things of all the nations, and I will fit this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. They're all going to come. You need to understand, like I said, it's not under duress. It will be an act of worship. They, they will bring it to the king of kings as an act of worship. The Arab world is going to bring their wealth to Israel. Like the Gentile nations who have fought with Israel since God created them, really, they will likewise bring their wealth to Israel to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, have the Arabs had a heartburn with the Jews for a while? goes back to like Isaac and Ishmael, right? And it's been that way since those guys. Read Kings, read, you know, the book of Judges, right? Have they been trying to pillage and plunder the, the Arab nations, Israel? It's been going on for like millennia, right? Is it still going on? Like, who's Hamas? Oh, they'd be Arabs. Ultimately descendants of Ishmael. It's still going on. But it's going to end, and as an act of worship, they will bring their wealth to Israel. Let me read you one quote. It says, examples of this kind of wealth will be brought are gold, increased flocks of rams and silver. Examples of the nations that will bring their riches are Midian, which is south of the Dead Sea, Ephrath, which is a branch of the Midianites as Midian was Ephah's father, Sheba, probably the Sabaeans, and southwest Arabia, Kedar, and northern Arabia. They're all going to do it. And they're going to do it as an act of worship to Yahweh. And there's going to be unprecedented growth in spiritual influence. The point to note here, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, who are those who fly like a cloud and whose doves are like lattices? Surely the coastlines will hope in me. The ships of Tarsus will come to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, for the name of Yahweh your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has adorned you with beautiful glory. Wow, what's going on here? The point of the statement is about the ships of Tarsus and you get, you get lots of stuff. Maybe they're Spain, maybe they're somewhere else. Bringing both the Israelites and Gentiles' wealth tells Israel that Israel's eschatological restoration will be a magnitude such as the world has never seen. The city's exile population will return, and the nations will bring wealth as a tribute. This is a sign of the Lord's renewed blessing will be everywhere. Where it says the coastlands will hope, the coastlands represent the nations. 
right? They represent the nations. You see the same thing in Zechariah 8. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, It will be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and seek Yahweh of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek Israel, will come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of Yahweh. They will go and they will worship the God of Israel. The God who sits on the throne. By the way, as a reminder, who's that? It's Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. They're going to come to Israel. They're going to come and look at it at the end. It says, for the name of Yahweh your God and the holy one of Israel, for he has adorned you with beautiful glory. They're going to go and take part of that. Yes, ma'am. Tarshish. Okay, so the um, ships of Tarshish. There's a lot, so the, uh, there's, it could be ships from Spain representing Europe, but it also talks them coming from everywhere. So the key to understand this is not get wrapped around the axle of where exactly, but it's the point is they're coming from all the nations. They're coming from Europe. They're coming from everywhere, not only to bring back the Jews and to worship, but to bring wealth to Israel, to bring wealth to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, I mean, if you look it up, you'll see different. Um, most people think it represents Spain. Tarshish is Spain. The ships of Tarshish are, the, are ships from Spain. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, doesn't it? Those are the airplanes of Tarshish. It's not addressed here. The 747s of Tarshish, it's, it's, in a, it's in First Concordance and the Book of Maps. So you can look there and read about that. Okay, let's keep going. We'll see how far we get. I want you to look at verses 10 through 14. Because by the way, here you are. Here you are. It says, foreigners will build up your walls, and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually, and they will not be closed day and night, or night, so that the men may bring the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish. And the nations will surely be laid waste. The glory of Lebanon will come in, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary with beautiful glory. And I will make my place, shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who have afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who spurned you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is really so. Notice right there in verse 10, who's it talking about? Who's it say? What's the word? Foreigners. Foreigners. It's like people not from Texas. 
but it's different in this context because it includes people from Texas. But notice what it talks about. First of all, the nations will rebuild Zion. It says they'll rebuild the walls. You can see that in Zechariah 6. And those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, and it will happen if you, list, you utterly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. See, the point is there's a demonstration of the power and the fulfillment of God. The Gentile foreigners are going to come and rebuild Jerusalem, and they're going to build the temple. Okay, there will be a temple built during the tribulation, right? And in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to defile it with the abomination of desolation. He's going to put himself in the temple and declare himself God. Don't worry, it doesn't work out well for him. Jerusalem will be attacked. I don't know the condition of it by the end of the tribulation, but the foreign, the nations will come back and they'll rebuild it all. And it will be obvious that God is doing this. The gates, notice that the gates will never close so that the nations will be able to bring their wealth and offerings to Israel and their kings will lead the procession. Their kings and their rulers will personally be involved and they will come to honor the Messiah who is ruling in Jerusalem. See, this is going to be unprecedented. When in the history of the world has all the nations, no one excluded, every living person go to one place to worship one person, one king, one god? Does that ever happen in history? Nope, never. Never. This is an event that is unprecedented. They will all come and the gates will be open. God is saying, look, I will never close. I am always available. By the way, that's true today, isn't it? That's true today for your souls. It's true today for unbelievers. When you share the gospel, you can take into this. Look, Jesus is saying, I'm open. I never close. I'm always available. Come to me for salvation. I'm always listening. It will be a foretaste of the eternal state. Notice the gates will never close. I think Isaiah here is starting to talk not just about the millennial kingdom, but the eternal state. Notice in Revelation 21-25 it says, And the gates will never be closed by day, for there will be no night there. Right? I think we're starting to... He's looking forward and he's seeing God's ultimate consummation of everything. And notice it says that in verse 12 that all who do not serve, right? See it there in verse 12? For the nations in the kingdom which will not serve you will perish. The nations will surely be laid waste. Daniel talks about this specific event in chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be crushed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to those kingdoms, but it, but it will stand forever. And he talks about, he's talking about the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And then he says in verse, Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And the great God has made known to this king what will happen in the future. So the dream is certain and its interpretation trustworthy. Remember we talked about principles at the very beginning of the study. We talked about principles of interpretation. We said when certain words are used metaphorically, you always translate them the same. Notice, it says the kingdom will, and it will crush and put to an end all those kingdoms. Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it crushed. And those four things are the four major kingdoms, right? In this statue, remember the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's east? But a stone's going to come out and cry. Who's the stone? Jesus Christ. He's the rock. He's the cornerstone. He will crush them. But you need to understand, we live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that's not indifferent. It's not agnostic. You know, I talk to people, oh, I'm agnostic. You know, understand what they mean? Well, I don't, I'm not neither for or against. It's kind of like I'm going to vote not present. No, you're not. You know, you hate God, right? Those who say they don't believe God lie. They hate God and they know. I don't care what they say. And I know that because Romans 1 tells me that. Ecclesiastes tells me that. They know. There is no such thing as a real atheist. There are practical atheists who deny God, say, I don't believe, I don't believe, but in the night, when they're alone in their heart, they know. And God says, I am going to destroy you all. We don't need to fear them. We don't need to be angered by them. You know, i got to be honest, some of the things I see just make me want to put my fist through my desk. Right? You just, you just see the hatred toward God, and it angers us. But we need to understand, in the end, their destiny is, is not good. They should either repent, and if they don't repent, they will be crushed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, either before the Millennial King or after. By the way, if the, if, the, if the tribulation starts tomorrow, we get raptured sometime tonight, right? What will, ha- will the unbelievers be raptured? What's going to happen to them? They're going to be sitting around going, where'd he go? Right? They're going to look at, you know, Deck's house is empty. Where'd they go? Right? They're going to look at Phil's house and go, Phil used to be there. Was, where, where'd they go? Where are they? And there's this guy who's going to come and he's going to rule. He's going to make a promise to Israel he will break. And the world will experience the most severe suffering and tribulation it has ever experienced. Jesus said that himself. And Jesus himself said, in fact, it's going to be so bad, no one will survive, but God in his mercy is going to stop it because I'm going to come back, right? Unimaginable suffering. That's their destiny. And by the way, the people who are alive today shaking their fists may experience that. Good news, you won't, right? Before that happens, what's going to happen to you? You're going to get raptured. That'll be really cool. Okay, and notice... 
So I'll tell you what, we're going to stop here at number two. And we're going to finish this next week. And I I don't like to do that, but i got to tell you, my enthusiasm and my zeal for this is hard to contain. It's, It's not me, it's just the glory of all of this. Because again, what, what, when I see how abundantly, how unimaginably God is going to fulfill his promises to Israel, that is an indicator to me of my destiny when I stand before him. Right? Jesus isn't promising in this life I will have that. But we're going to see later in this, in this study that, by the way, you're not of this world. You're not in your kingdom yet. You're a foreigner. Right? You have a heaven passport and you've got a visa for this earth. Jesus says you are in the world, but you're not of the world. You're a stranger. You're an alien is what Peter says. Right? And when you get home, when I look at how God is going to incomprehensibly bless Israel, and then I think when I get home, how is the king going to incomprehensibly bless me? I will see him face to face, unveiled. I will see what Moses wanted to see but couldn't, right? That's what I will see. I will see what David wanted to see but couldn't. David in Psalm 27 says, Lord, I seek your face. I want to see your face, God. I need it. But David didn't get to see it. And we will see him face to face unveiled. In fact, it says, and I've shared this many times because the passage overwhelms me. He's going to come like a mother to a kid who's scraped his knee and he's going to put his hands on my face and he's going to wipe away every tear. Personally, the creator of the universe will do that. Right? And by the way, what will those tears come from? It's not going to be, oh, this place is what I thought of. When we see him, we're going to be ashamed of all those things we did. That's where I believe the tears will come from. And we're going to look at him and we're going to go, Jesus, I, I, I had so many opportunities and I sinned against you. And, and we're going to want to have tears, and he's just going to wipe them away and say, it's okay, they're all forgiven, and you're with me now. Right? I try and imagine that moment. I can't. It, the glory, I, I, I just can't imagine. I keep trying. Right? That is our destiny. And when we see how God is going to so gloriously bless Israel, that helps me imagine or understand how gloriously he's going to bless me. Me, one who deserves his wrath. I should be like the nations. But I'm not, not because of anything I did. Just like Israel. Is it anything Israel did? Nope, nothing Israel did. God did it. Yahweh did it. And it's the same thing true in my life. I wasn't saved because I was really smart, figured it out. I'm really intelligent. I did a good thing. I was saved because Yahweh came down and poured his light and his glory on me. And he turned my heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Right? That's the covenant we talked about at the end of chapter 59, right? That's the covenant.
So look at this passage. We'll come back and finish it because there's even more glory in it. All right? And then we're going to go to chapter 61. And you're going to be like, wow. And then we're going to go to chapter 62 and you go, enough. Then we're going to go to chapter 63 and you go, I give up. Then we're going to go to chapter 64. I mean, the whole rest of the book. Read it. It's only a few more chapters left. Read it. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you. And we are reminded of the glory of the king who will sit and rule from Zion and how he will pour out unimaginable grace and love on his people in Israel. And that shows us, Lord, it gives us an idea of the love you have for us and what our destiny will be like. Lord, we confess, first of all, we deserve none of it. We deserve to be treated like the nations who don't believe in you. But Lord, you saved us. And I pray that as we go from here to worship Jesus Christ, our King, your Spirit work in our hearts and our worship would be pleasing to you because you are worthy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.